1: to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Good afternoon, everybody. This is the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and today we have a very, very special guest. This is, in my neighborhood, we call him the OG. <laughs> uh, this is one of the greats this is somebody that paved the way for a lot of players that we watch currently playing she's a secret mentor to just about everybody black in tennis uh, this is appropriately timed because she's also a gold medalist um, and a wimbledon finalist this is zena garrison zena garrison thank you for joining us
2: Thanks, Kamal. Thanks for having me. And people always forget I'm also a bronze medalist in, in um, the
1: 1988 Olympics as well. Ah, and singles. In singles, yes. Well, that was a year because you won gold in doubles and in singles that, year, and then won bronze in singles that year.
2: Yes, that was, and actually, I beat uh, Pam Shriver in the um, quarterfinals to actually uh, have the opportunity to play in the semis. So that was pretty interesting, too. And then
1: Pam and I went on and won a gold medal. Oh, Lord. Now, how was that? Having beat beater in the singles and then, you know, reunite and keep going for the doubles title? <laughs> it actually was kind of, we were also roommates. So it was very
2: interesting because, you know, Pam and I always tell the story, you know, um, definitely, you know, what you call Mud and Jeff kind of thing. T- Pam's very tall um and white I'm black and short <laughs> and <laughs> so you know she's sloop footed I'm pigeon-toed so we were definitely you know two of a you know different makes up you know I came from you know my dad was a postman and Pam came from you know a little bit of money so it was it was always kind of different <laughs> but we we have developed what we call um the soul sisters from getting our medal in Seoul, Korea. So we call ourselves the Seoul Sisters for uh, life. <laughs> uh, okay,
1: okay. Now, now they don't have roommates now with all this COVID and all the protocols. Yeah. But that that is interesting. But that, that, that talks about the times because over your career, you have been roommates with a lot of people, right? Or allowed a lot of people to be your roommates. Take me back to when you were the lead the leader of the pack. You know, your pack was you, Lori, Katrina. Take me back to those days where you were the leader, you were making a bunch of money, everybody was coming behind you. <laughs> Tell me about those those good old days.
2: Well, like you say, a bunch of money revel, revel it to the times, not a bunch of money. But it can today's um situation, but you know it was it was okay during that time. But you know, I w- I came up in the air. Um, you know, before me there was Leslie Allen, Renee Blonde, Kim Sands, and so and you know even before then there was our, our, uh, Arthur Ash out there Gibson, and so I was always taught to you know especially the minority players to kind of give back and. To, as far as your wisdom, when the next generation was coming up. So it was kind of easy for me because people helped me when I came up. And so I, it was very easy for me to help. Um, and I used to love, you know, talking about what you could do to improve your game or just being on the tour, things that you might have to uh, deal with that most people would never even think that a minority player had to deal with.
1: Now, I'm from Chicago, so even before I had the chance to meet you, I learned about you uh, through Katrina Adams, because Katrina was always saying how you looked out for her. And a lot of people don't, they don't really <laughs> know that you, you know, were very instrumental. You know, and then Katrina primarily played doubles, right? So a lot of doubles players yeah. in their rooms, all the prize money they get, they got to cut in half. And so, you know, it's hard to make a living in doubles. And you were instrumental in sort of her being able to stay out there early on. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Even to the point Katrina moved here for like five years in my, uh, and um, you know, was able to work out and, you know, she was a young one coming up and just um, just took her under our wings and just allowed her to, you know, play doubles with her besides, she was a really good doubles player, you know, so that was easy. Um but to play doubles with her allowed her to make money and be able to train and work out. And uh, you know, my family absolutely loved her. So for five years, she she was part of the Garrison family here in
1: Houston, Texas, as well as the community. And mm-hmm. that community is famous because you got Carl Lewis down there. You know, I met Jackie during the cursor through, the cursor <laughs> through you, and always hear about these infamous w- track workouts that you all will go through, even though you all were playing a different sport. I always hear about these times on the track, even from Katrina Lori. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what that was like to be able to train with Carl and Jackie Joyner. Well, actually, it was
2: um, more, with, more with Jackie. I actually trained with uh, Bob Kersey and um, I would actually go out to LA and train and then they would come here and we'd train over at Rice University sometimes and those were actually some of the best times and some of the most amazing times but for me I'll never forget going out onto the track with Jackie and Bobby and so I, you know, Bobby told me to run around the track and I thought I was like running and I thought I was doing good. And then I see all these Olympic athletes and they're, you know, they're like laughing at like Gail Devers and all of those guys. And they're laughing. at me. I'm like, what is going on? And Jackie's like, what are you doing? And I'm like running. She goes, that ain't running. <laughs> so that's what I first learned about the technique of running. And I remember Bobby used to get me up at five o'clock in the morning to teach me the technique of running. And, you know, you know, you got, you got to make sure you kick your foot back and it should touch your butt and, you know, all of that. And your arms shouldn't be all over the place. And so I had to learn how to run. And then I remember after being out there for about a month or so and uh, coming around the track and, and, Everybody's like, yeah, Zena family, you learn how to run. So, you know, Jack is one of my best friends, and, you know, Bobby, and it's just, you know, it's just amazing what the Olympics um, brings about meeting so many people that will be your lifetime friends. And so, you know, I'm one of those people right now, waking up and I'm watching the Olympics, and I, I, I now become a fan of the new three on three basketball. You're know, like, I think that's like the. Oh, the coolest little sport going on right now. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I've had the opportunity to travel to, you know, every Grand Slam and almost every stop on the WTA tour, but I've never had the chance to go to the Olympics. So mm. What's different about the Olympics? Because you look at the draw now and you see a lot of the American women, you know, sort of going out early. A lot of the big names, you saw Osaka kind of lose uh, early. Is it more pressure is it less pressure? Do you, felt, you know, to me, when you look from the outside looking in, you would think that you got a whole team of folks kind of putting the battery in your back and putting a little gas in your gas tank, and that will sort of make you play better. But that's not always the case. So tell tell me what you what your perception is the difference between, let's say, you know, a Grand Slam and an Olympic game.
2: Well, I, f- I think, first of all, it, it, it is totally different than anything that you can imagine because you're not just playing for, you're not just playing for yourself and for your team, uh, meaning a team of people that normally with you, you all of a sudden playing for your country. And so it, it to me, it's one of those, it's a weird kind of situations because you're still, you're an individual athlete that's going and all of a sudden you put into a team and, uh a team of U S people. And also you become a little fan, you know, fan like, Oh my God, there is such and such over there. Oh, you know, the basketball team just switched. So you have your own kind of like, you know, mental thing that's going on, but you still got to play in the midst of all of this. And I always like to say, you know, of course this is a little different because they don't have the fans and everything, but it, when you see the other athletes that and you know that they've put in the time and the work and to get to this position and just as well as you, um, it, it's a very interesting and a weird kind of sorority fraternity thing that you will be in for life. But then when you win a, a gold medal or win a medal, it's a whole nother level as well. And as far as tennis players, it's always interesting to me because when you watch the draws kind of dissolve and some of those top players are not in there a lot of times i feel and this is my personal opinion sometimes they the focus is not all on them and they're not used to it and so that takes a little a little away from that mystique and that's why you sometimes get people that you never even heard of that could actually want to go medal win a medal in the sport and it just happens like that um so you have to kind of go in there kind of knowing that you're not going to be the center of attention and just play for whatever it
1: is and enjoy the moment to, to be successful. It's interesting you say that because, you know, a lot of tennis players do need, you know, they uh, they need that attention. They need that sort of that air to walk around and be in the feeling of being the man in an environment. And with tennis, you know, we, we're like a small sport when you think about, You know, soccer, basketball, you know, when I think about the Olympics, track and field comes to mind more Mm -hmm. than anything. Um, So that's interesting how you say that the attention is not on you and you could sort of fade because, you know, you got the dream team, right? You got Kevin Durant over there. You got, um, you know, all all the basketball players over there and they are bigger stars, you know, so you can kind of get starstruck and get out of your zone of being, you know, your own sort of celebrity and sort of like, it could take away a little bit of your power that you need to believe in yourself to perform.
2: Yeah. Cause I, I remember in 1988, you know, being over there in Seoul and I actually took my brother who Rodney Garrison, who absolutely loves sports. And, um, I was disconnected with him for a couple of days and I never forget. Uh, I was trying to figure out like where he was, he was in family village and I was over in the, um, in the you know the the players participants uh, village, and so I remember being in line, and I remember. Roy Jones, they were talking about, "Oh, yeah, this guy, and you know his sister's a black tennis player, and blah blah, blah blah, and I went over and I was like, "Can you take me to my brother?" And I remember going in and like the family's a party, and everybody's having a good time, you know, but I'm saying all I like to say is that's how small tennis was. Like nobody, they were in the Olympic Village, but there were so many more other sports, and you know, tennis just happened to be there. I mean, I hadn't spoken to my brother in three days, and I went over there, but Roy Jones. Um, like took me over there, and my brother knew everybody in track and field, you know, kayak and it didn't matter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Now, you mentioned, you know, the families and the fact that you took your brother, right? This is sort of an odd Olympic time because all the stands are empty, and a lot of athletes are getting the chance to sort of play without fans. And you know it's different. You know, because the fans are, you know, whether we, whether you admit it or not, the fans are the battery in your back. Right. And yes. and athletes love that attention and they love that excitement. And without the fans, it takes a lot of sort of inner determination and inner, you know, you got to kind of like, you know, create your own energy, which a lot of athletes struggle to do. What are you what, what would you be thinking right now if you were over there in a in a spectator free environment?
2: Well, it, it would it would definitely be different, especially the Olympics. I mean, because that's like, I mean, I can't even imagine what how they're feeling right now um, because it's such a country, you know, you're playing for your country, everybody's looking in, but you need that energy to, to, to pump yourself up a little bit. And me being a big introvert and, you know, people would never imagine that I'm an introvert. But when I got on the court I love the energy from the people (laughs) um so you know I was just watching a little bit of the doubles um I think Francis and Ram were playing and and just the energy you know just watching them trying to build energy off themselves or looking over the stands from from the team that that's a little it's a little tough but you know they they got to do what they got to do (laughs)
1: yeah, this is the tennis.com podcast. I'm your host Kamal Murray and we are with the legendary Zena Garrison. So Zena, you talked about being an introvert and a lot of people they wouldn't think that because you were successful. You were so successful as an athlete and you mentor, right? So you give a lot of bit of yourself, uh, I mean a lot of yourself to other people. But I remember you and I talking about how you would just be so emotionally drained. And have to disappear for a couple of days after being <laughs> out in the public. Yeah, so much. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, you know, it's just really interesting because one of my mentors, Billie Jean King, um, I remember being her assistant coach, and we were in, in, in Kona, um, and and Kona, and. I remember her saying to me, Zena, go take a nap. And I was like, well, I don't need a nap. And she's like, Zena, you, 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 when you're around people, like it takes a lot. You know, she told me, so you're an introvert. And I said, yeah, I am. She said, it takes a lot because you're giving, 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 giving. And she said, but that's not your personality. So you need to go and re-motivate, you know, get that engine running again by getting away from people. And I started noticing that I could go three or four days very strong. And then it's like, okay, I need to step away for a minute. So Billings and King was actually the first person that helped me notice, you know, with an introvert, it might seem we can, we, it might seem like we, we, you know, we're on that stage and we're giving it all and we're talking to people. But then when we get back, we're like, oh, I'm so drained. She was the first person that helped me realize that there is a such thing. So when I see someone like a Naomi Osaka, I get her <laughs> probably more than most people. Sometimes you just got to step back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, what's funny is, um, you know, I'm a middle child in a, a middle class family. And so I had the opportunity to hide a lot. Mm -hmm. In my house, you know, because my brother was six nine. He was a basketball superstar. He was smart. um, You know, he was everything. And then my my little sister was, you know, high jump champion, swim champion, super smart, you know, all of that kind of thing. And so I was sort of, uh, you know, taking public transportation home, kind of (laughs) finding my own way through life and through tennis. My parents didn't play tennis, so I kind of navigated a lot of that myself. And. You know, when I started raising money to build a center in Chicago, I had to be like out there, you know, talking to people, networking, you know, standing up. And people thought I loved it or they think that I like enjoyed like being out and doing that kind of thing. But I would like sit in my car for 30 minutes after, you know, talking to somebody or going to an event and just like sit there because it was so draining. And, you know, to your point, you know, even at a tournament, I'll come back from, Wimby or something like that. And I will like not answer the phone for three days just because <laughs> I've been around so many people and it actually makes me really uncomfortable. And so it's, it's like you said, it's, it's the opposite of what a lot of people think because, you know, I too, and you know, will go and hide for a couple of days just so I could recenter myself because a lot of the attention you get from the outside is not real. You yeah, know? and it can kind of take you away from, I mean, it could, it could take you up, right? And make you believe you bigger than you are or it can also beat you down, you know, because now you got public criticism for, you know, your player lost or whatever happens. And so, you know, I, I definitely can att- uh, relate to the misconception that you enjoy the attention, you enjoy, you enjoy, you know, even, you know, talking about tennis on TV uh, or being at an event, you know, cause it is not natural. and um, I do think that that's a, I, I can relate to just the emotional exhaustion You know. uh.
2: Yeah. And the other thing that I found out, too, the more passionate you are about helping others or, or or even caring about someone else, you know, just or how the world is working or different things. You take on a lot. And sometimes that sucks and zaps your energy because you want to do something about it. So you got to find that happy balance between it.
1: So let me ask you this. We talk about you know obviously tennis being a small sport and you know the Olympic Games you see all these bigger athletes, but even within our small sport, there are certain people that have like this top dog air and glow about them. I can remember it was a rainy day at Wimbledon and Roger walked through uh, the player lounge, you know at the top there, the food lounge. Everybody walked through, everybody kind of piled in one area you know, trying to hide from the rain because there's not a lot of places to hide. (laughs) And, you know, he already has, like, a swag that is just unmatched. But I remember seeing him walk down the aisle and seeing Nadal step out of his way. And I was like, now, Nadal is probably the second best player at that time. But the way that he moved out of his way to sort of leave to create room for Fed was like, now that's that that shows that that dude's on a different level. Who in your era had that glow or that air about him?
2: Yeah, it's um, it's funny because I came up in a couple different eras, but Martina Navatilova um, definitely had what I call a, a strut. Um, and she had she, she demanded a certain level of, of games when you got on the court, because you're like, Oh Lord, I'm playing Martina, you know, you know, but she had that, that air that you were talking. And then Steffi Graff, um, because Steffi was, you didn't quite know that much about her and she was in and out and she would beat you so quick that she, she had that, you know, little air. I was really fortunate because with Steffi, you know, um, Steffi would be on and off the court so, so quick, but she liked to go to, she loved Chinese restaurants, Chinese food restaurants, and we'd end up, and both of us love Chinese food, so we'd end up the set getting Chinese food from the same restaurant over and over, So, and then end up sometimes at the movies, you know, so she was, I just happened to be one of those people she would speak to. But I would say Martina and Steffi, for me, had that kind of air. And then on the other side, probably Sampras had a little bit of it.
0: Mm, mm.
1: Yeah, I could see Steffi kind of having Martina. She she got that balance. She still kind of has that glow. In <laughs> is always gonna have that bounce. <laughs> she, she, she got that bounce when she sort of walked through, kind of side to side, kind of quick <laughs> moving, kind of quick. And oh hey, come on, hey, how's it going? That kind of thing, right. Uh, I remember that one time she was in Chicago for something, and her flight got delayed. And uh, I took her to dinner uh, at at her favorite Asian restaurant in Chicago, which is no longer there. a Restaurant called Japane.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and it was just the most interesting conversation you know, from a from a champion. And she actually, she talked about how uh, it was actually a little bit of a, even though like, you know, for your, you know, she keeps you up at night, right? If you got to play her, you know, you yeah. win for the day. But yeah. from her standpoint, she talked about how it was, it was it was a challenge to be number one and to be the top dog. Mm. And it wasn't always a great feeling. Um, you got to four in the world. How did you feel being four in the world? Because from, you know, when you look at it, if you fall in the world, almost every loss is a career win for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's only three people that you can lose to. And it'd be somewhat understandable. Right. Or not a bad loss for you. What, what is that pressure like to only be able to really lose to three people and need to beat another, you know, the 96, 95 people below you? Well, for me, it was, it was always tough. And for some
2: reason I played Martina like 30 something times and it was always like in the semis or to go to the finals or in the finals. And so Martina was kind of like that person that was blocking me from even probably moving up to three to two, but Kamal, to be honest, I, I, for me, I just always wanted to be the best that I could be. And um, I would push myself to, you know, to keep improving. I was one of those players. I just hated losing to certain people. You know, I just felt, you know, I my game was better. Not that I personally was better. My game was better and I should not lose to those people. Um, but on the other end of that, I also was one of those that, you know, you ask a young player, oh yeah, I want to be number one. I never wanted to be number one. And people always say, what? What are you, like, what are you talking about? I never wanted to be number one because I didn't want the pressure of all of the other outside world um, things that I would have to do. I never wanted that. You must remember, like I said, I was an introvert. So it was like, I could have been number two, three or four, and that would have been fine. But I just hate losing. But I didn't want all the extra added pressure that it that it brought on.
1: So I knew that at a young age. Now, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> we think about somebody like Nick Kyrgios, who probably has the talent to be number one. Mm-hmm. Clearly doesn't want to be, right? And the the world has a problem with that. What do you think? about, you know, A, other people putting expectations on people that they don't want and B, just really talk of, like you just said. It's okay to not want to be number one and it's okay to find an altitude that you're comfortable flying at. What is your take on his situation and sort of his behavior?
2: Yeah, I, I think he's, you know, he's an interesting uh, character in a lot of ways because I think he's very clear on what what he wants, I think sometimes the losing does become too much for him because, and when I say that is, he knows he's better than most people, and he loses, and then you bring on all the other stuff. But he knows that if he wins just enough, he has a platform to help in a lot of other ways, and I think he's very comfortable with that. But. Um, You know, I'm I'm one of those people in the respect just with Nick is just like I just want him to win one grand slam. So just, you know, (laughs) focus just long enough for one grand slam and then you would be even have a bigger platform. But, you know, he only he knows what's important to him. Um, Just don't want to be in the situation where you look back
1: and it's and you say, wow, I could have done better, you know. Now, let me ask you this you know, right now we see an emergence of black tennis players and, you know, the assistance that they're receiving is, you know, they're getting more access to, you know, people wanting to invest in their careers and giving them a little bit of help early. We know Osaka had a lot of help from Japan. We know Coco gets a lot of help from, you know, overseas. You know, in your era, there wasn't a lot of help and you learned to play at McGregor Park, right? In Houston hmm. So how did you, how did you make it? Because back in your day, we weren't making it. <laughs> we weren't. I mean, it's like you were like, I don't know if you know this, but you were like the some mystifying personality <laughs> that learned how to play tennis in the park and got to number four in the world. You know, you didn't go to any fancy academies or go overseas and all this other kind of stuff. You made it from right there. How, how do you explain your success?
2: The only way I can ex- explain my success is um, I was very loyal and honest to the coach that brought me up, John Wilkerson, and and to my community, and to me that you know I I you know I was a weird kind of kid because I understood where my confidence within myself came, and that was my community, um, McGregor Park, you know John, the people that I played tennis around, but I also have to give credit to, you know after winning Junior Wimbledon. That actually kind of put me on the map as far as people started like understanding that I could be the you know the next major black tennis player. And so Arthur Ashe, you know, gave a lot of advice to me as well, but just the black community within itself. And if I really needed to go to a tournament and didn't have it, my mom and and her and the her friends and the people in the community, they would sell you know, fish dinners, they would sell, you know, barbecue, whatever it took. Um, And also back in those days, I had the opportunity, I found out at an early age too, you could win scholarships with, you know, if you played in a tournament, and you did well, there was normally what was called a sportsmanship award, and they would get $2,500 here, $3,000 here for different things. So every time I go to a tournament, that was my goal, to be good enough and um, nice enough to everyone that I would win the sportsmanship award. And that would allow me to go to another tournament. And things just started rolling for me after that.
1: Wow. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. This is the tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with the legendary Zena Garrison. Uh, So, Zena, you mentioned that Arthur Ashe was sort of a mentor and, you know, gave you advice. Um, You know, Serena has been very public about your role in... You know, being a mentor to her over the years, I remember an interview where she said, oh, my dad took me in Venus to see Zena Garrison and <laughs> you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Talk about that relationship a little bit early on and what you told them early in their careers, you know, as a way of the motivation or to help them navigate uh, this tennis scene. Well, one of the biggest things
2: is, you know, um, I have to give credit to to Richard and also Orasim, but Richard would call me at six o'clock in the morning, like, hey, you not up. Why are you not practicing? You know, hey, what about this? And I remember one of the things that he asked me about. I never forget this is he asked me one morning, he's like, hey, You know, a lot of people are telling me that Venus now needs to play junior tournaments. And, you know, but I was just thinking about taking her straight on to the pros. You know, we have some contracts coming up or whatever. I'm like, why would you have her play junior tournaments now when she's got all this press and, you know, let her play a professional tournament? And so um, he, I know he had a couple other people that told him that as well. And I think it was the right decision for him at that time. Just because Venus was so, <clears throat> so gifted and it turned out perfectly fine. But I'm saying all I have to say is, you know, a lot of people want to follow the Richard Williams way of doing it. But a lot of people don't have Venus or Serena <laughs> so that that's not going to work for everybody. But one thing Richard would do, he would ask questions. You know, he would ask questions to different people about different things. And he studied the game and he studied people. And I think it worked. Well, it did work for him.
1: Yeah, I look at these kids now. You you could name, you know, five or six parents that tried sort of the Venus and Serena method of never playing juniors. And I was saying and from a broad standpoint, I disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, your job as a tennis player isn't to play well. It's to win tennis matches. And learning to win tennis matches, you know, you got to put them out there to see if they actually can compete, you know, and not just hitting forehands and backhands. You got to put them out there to just sort of see if they can compete. So that that just sort of is always my big caution when I talk to parents um, who, you know, don't want to put them in junior tournaments or maybe either they're afraid of, you know, running from a bad loss or just trying to, you know, not, kill the hype that they create. You know, if you never play, you never got to kind of stand up to the hype. Um, but I always believe it's best to kind of stick the player out there um, to see if they can compete, you know, because the job is to compete. It ain't to just, you know, make some serves, make some forehands, make some backhands. Can <laughs> you Can you win tennis matches, right? And that takes practice. Um, but well, you
2: do- and I, and I definitely, I mean, I agree with you on that. I mean, I think more kids, should play junior tournaments than not um <clears throat> but I also even more, and you know you and I talk about this a lot, you know <clears throat> we gotta have gotten to, to really get the path of college tennis back strong the way it used to be because now these kids that have gone to academies and everything and don't quite make it or you know professional level whatever then they' they're lost. <laughs> So I think it is getting better. And I think, you know, I know the USTA is, is actually putting more emphasis on it. And so we've had more people like a Brady and Isner that you can see that you can still go to school and and then come out and still play professional tennis and have a great career. Um, but even more in the, in the HBCU schools, I mean, we've got to get that stronger as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, we I remember... You know, I would a lot of times I come back from a pro tournament and, you know, people come in, pop in Chicago, visit, and they will, you know, bring their kids in and have me sort of evaluate them and good players. And I always say, hey, I just left, you know, Beijing and I was on the court with blah, 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 or, you know, Coco Vanderwey and Madison Keys and they was popping them serves. And your serve is good, but it ain't like that. Right. Yeah. So you should go to college. And I think that they're, you know, without having that up close and personal view of what a professional looks like, you know, you can sort of, you know, my, like like my dad used to say, pimp pass, you'll stop. Yeah. You know what I mean, where you don't you don't really know where you fit in because you don't know what good looks like. And so I think that's that, that 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 leads into it. So I got a couple of questions. I know you I know you've been very generous with your time, but I, I have like questions just from somebody who's been basically everywhere on tour mm-hmm. and just to get your preferences uh do you prefer gla- grass or clay <laughs> that's not even a
2: question um <laughs> definitely grass absolutely from the very first time I I played on it I fell in love with it
1: all right so Wimbledon court 18 or court three
2: um actually neither if it's not center court or court one <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a serious hot dog. Always love the, the major courts, but the further back you put me, the chances of me losing could be greater. So, but I always try to stay a high seed so I can at least play high on one of the better courts.
1: <laughs> Indian Wells or Miami? Indian Wells. Roof open or closed?
2: Um, probably. I, you know, I, I'm the old heiress. So I wasn't used to outdoor tournaments being played indoors, but <laughs> I probably I always loved indoor tournaments. So I would I would imagine I would love indoors faster, able for me to get to the net, move the ball around a lot more. So I would probably have loved the roof closed.
1: OK, uh, there was no Airbnb back then, but y'all did rent flats and stuff. So hotel or Airbnb?
2: Oh, definitely Airbnb. I love to cook. Um, In 1990 Wimbledon, I cooked my whole entire um, two weeks that I played up right up until the finals and I would make breakfast for everyone and, you know, bring my lunch.
0: Mm, So
1: that's been my next one. Uh, When you had a tournament, are you doing a team dinner or are you going out solo? Oh, definitely team dinner.
2: I, I needed to kind of wind down with everybody and get a little laugh and you know I I was
1: definitely a team dinner all right um tie break for the set or win by two um win by
2: two I I, I want you to feel it when you come off that court I want you to go as long as you can and no lucky shots to just change the match
1: (laughs) Mm. Wimbledon whites or colors
2: Um, I'm a traditionist and Billy Jean King would probably kill me saying I like the whites, but you know, the times are, should be able to wear different colors if you want to, but I like the green and the white background.
1: Mm -hmm. Crowd for you or against you?
2: Oh, definitely crowd for me. But I was a little, if you go against, if the crowd was against me, that would give me a little more oomph.
0: Mm.
1: And the last question is, I, I asked Mal this question about his Wimbledon run. Um, you know, I always say in order to get to a Grand Slam final, or even to win a Grand Slam, you got to get it right for 14 days. And I mean, everything got to go right. You got to have the right practice court, the right practice partners, the right hotel, the right dinner. You can't get food poisoning. You can't get bed bugs. Can't get caught in traffic. Got to have the right draw. Everything <laughs> sort of has to line up to go right. Um, what was special about that run to Wimbledon? And don't don't leave out. You got to have a little luck. <laughs> and you got to have a little luck. Somebody got to <laughs> lose that you just don't want to see. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, I think what was special about that Wimbledon is, um, and it's so funny to me because I listen to people right now and I hear, you know, people are starting to, you know, talk about, Um, you know, I'm someone working with someone for the mental coaching and all that. Tennis players have always had that. They just never like said it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I remember in 1990 um, I had um, my mental therapist there and I remember, you know, three or four months before then working on one shot um, that I kept you know, missing on crucial points, and it was just a total block, and um, finding out later it had something not even to do with tennis. It was just a block that I was going on within my life, and make a long story short, I remember getting that. I was down match point. I got the same forehand right in the middle of the court, right behind the service line, and I got this forehand and I was down match point against Mata Casellas, who was on a run. And I cracked the forehand down the line and I didn't look back and I made it to the finals of Wimbledon. And I remember that just being a real big team break for me because I also had my mental coach there. I had um, my trainer um, who actually died from breast, uh, uh, breast cancer not much longer after that. I had my coach who's Sherwood Stewart who had played and I had won the um, Wimbledon mixed doubles with prior to, I had my, you know, now my ex-husband was there and I had, you know, two family members, Alan Belma, And it was just like, for me, it was just a win for my team, not just me. And that was the first time that I realized, you know, you're, even you're playing an individual sport, but there's so many more things and so many people that had to be put in place to for me to get to that final.
1: Now, let me ask you this question, because I always wondered this, right? You played the entire women. I don't know if people know this. You played the entire tournament all the way up into the finals without a clothing deal. <laughs> yep. And you were wearing Martina Navratilova's clothes the whole tournament, right? Yes. <laughs> This and is the definite- for the final. You get a deal. Yeah. And you play the final in the new clothes. <laughs> I can remember when Sloan won the U.S. Open 2017, I wore the same shirt. You know, you, you get you start winning and you don't know why you're winning. I mean, you know, you know why you're winning, but you don't want to throw off anything. I wore the same shirt every time I went to a laundromat and washed that thing three or four times, you know, when it starts smelling. So, you know, most tennis players are very superstitious. Do you regret sign? Well, A. why do you think at that point in your career? I mean, you were you were on the map at that point.
2: Why yeah, do you think
1: you I, I, def- I definitely think about it sometimes
2: because we are superstitious. And, you know, I was superstitious like, oh, you know, sure. Well, we got to park the car right here and t- ask that person to move, you know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of stuff. And um but, you know, I knew our heart you know, and I would go back to the team. I knew at hard that, you know, my agents work just to even get a deal. And I found out later, actually I found out last year during the pandemic, um, my agent, Phil piciana he actually told me the story and I never knew like it went down literally into me almost walking on the court, um, the deal. And, um, making sure that it happened for me for multi-years and not just for the tournament, how they just wanted to give it for the tournament and they worked it out. No, it's either about to be multi-years or whatever. So that was kind of a breakthrough at that time for, um, for a woman of color in my uh, at my time getting that. So I couldn't kind of like pass it up. Mm-hmm. but I thought about it <laughs> like, if I had to go back now i probably be like now nah, I'm good let me just win the match no.
1: <laughs> the last question I'm going to ask you is about a man named Willis Thomas when I oh. first started coaching Willis you know he started creeping around the corner he's around but you don't hear him but you see him because you got this black dude with this pretty hair I'm like, I a black dude got some pretty hair so I remember Willis telling me he was like ah oh, Kamal you ain't a real coach until you get fired a couple of times. Xena hired and fired me about four times. <laughs> <sighs> what What's the story behind that? And why would you hire and fire them?
2: <laughs> well, actually, I only had, I think, four or five coaches in my whole, you know, 15 years, which, which, you know, as we know, as tennis go, tennis coaches come and go. So it wasn't that, you know, I actually... Kept coaches around, or maybe I fired them and brought them back. But Willis Thomas was a big part of my career because I grew up under John Wilkerson who was extremely strict and, you know, just only believe you should eat and drink tennis, eat, sleep, and drink tennis, and that's it. And you shouldn't have any other part of the life. But Willis was the type of person that you should have a balanced life. And, and so I learned a lot about balance from Willis and also about just growing up in life and, and also passing back because passing on to others because Willis was also one of those uh, firm believer of you know, passing on knowledge to others as well. Um, but one of the biggest things that I learned from Willis is probably learning to balance my life and enjoy it in the midst of everything as well. So why would you fire him? <laughs> I fired him because I'm a moody tennis player like most moody tennis players. And, you know, you just sometimes think you need something different. But, you know, but I always brought him back. So <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs>
2: as as you know from coaching, it's, you know, we can be moody in and out.
1: <laughs> oh, in and out. And it just you just sometimes you just need a break. <laughs> you just need a break then I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I appreciate you always being honest. I appreciate everything that you've given me over the years. Your friendship, your mentorship, you showing me the ropes uh, in the pro tennis and sort of, you know, how to how to do what's right. I think that a lot of times, especially in this sport, when your player is the boss, you sometimes are very hesitant to say and do what you know needs to be done. Right and You know, you always one of the biggest things you taught me was to just do your job. and Your job is helping win tennis matches, even if it hurts their feelings. You know what I mean? So (laughs) I want to thank you for everything you (laughs) everything you've given to me. Um, And, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, tennis in general starts to appreciate your story and your role. Not only, you know, for what you did back in the day, but what you still currently do and all the things that you do behind the scenes for a lot of players that are enjoying the, you know, the fruits of their labor right now. So I want to thank you. I want to give you your roses while you can still smell them. Uh, and I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been Tennis.com Podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we were lucky enough to grab my friend and Olympic gold medalist during the Olympics, uh, Zena Garrison. Zena, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. And good luck with your podcast.
1: Thank you, Zena.